Hello, and welcome to When It Mattered, a podcast on how leaders are forged in critical moments and how they deal with and learn from adversity. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. My guest is the legendary James Carville. He's an internationally recognized political strategist and media commentator. He's a best-selling author, public speaker, sports commentator, lawyer, and a prominent advisor in the Democratic Party. Nicknamed the Raging Cajun because of his spirited discourse and his Louisiana roots, Carville gained global recognition as the campaign manager who helped elect Bill Clinton president in 1992. He served as a longtime CNN co-host and commentator. He currently teaches in the School of Mass Communications at his alma mater, Louisiana State University, home of his beloved LSU Tigers. James, welcome to the podcast. No, thank you. It's a big honor to be on. It's great. Is it fair to say that you're a bit of a late bloomer? You burst on the national political scene when you were almost 50 as the campaign manager who helped Bill Clinton win the presidency. What were you up to before you found politics or before politics found you? A lot of stuff that's not suitable for your podcast. Yeah, I, I, I got married when I was 49, and I've only been married once, and I've been married for almost 26 years now. So, uh, and I was 48 when President Clinton got elected. So I, I guess it's safe to say I was a late bloomer, but bloom I did. <laughs> you did. Uh, what was your first political campaign like? I guess you were a lawyer before you became, before you discovered politics and your natural affinity for it. I think I discovered politics before I was a lawyer. My first campaign I ever worked on was I was like 13 or 14 years old. For a guy running for state representative in Louisiana, and my job was to go tear the other guy's signs off the telephone poles. Maybe I was 15 because I had to drive. So when I was 15, and, and I would go around Ibrahim Parish, Louisiana, and tear the signs of my boss's political opponents off the telephone poles. That's great. A lot of our listeners may not know that your last name, Carville, is actually the name of the town where you were born and raised, Carville, Louisiana, named after your paternal great-grandfather and postmaster, Louis Arthur Carville. So you have deep, multi-generational roots in Louisiana. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I've actually met my grandfather. Uh, by, by way of interest, my great-grandfather was actually a soldier in the Union Army and was a Republican member of the Louisiana legislature during Reconstruction. Uh, he died, and his wife, my great-grandmother, became the postmaster, and then my grandfather took over, and then my father took over. So we are, we're a family of uh, postmasters. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And you are the oldest of eight children, right? That's correct. And your mother was a school teacher, and then she sold encyclopedias, and your dad came from that long line of postmasters, and he also owned a general store. Yeah, he was a post and ran a general store. Yeah, my mother, uh, she taught school for a little while, and uh, when she had a lot of kids to educate, she sold World Book encyclopedias to supplement the family's income. So how did you go from your Louisiana roots to a national and global thinker? What was the most important factor in that evolution as a leader? You know, Kitra, it's, it's it's very interesting. I was uh, working in Baton Rouge, and without the necessity of detail, I decided one day that I was going was about to go crazy or go out of town, and I kind of thought the second was the best option. And a couple of friends of mine that I'd worked with in national politics said, "Well, you you know maybe you should try this." And I got a job running a campaign in Virginia in 1982, of which we lost, and then I. 
ran a campaign in Texas in 1984, which we lost. And so I was kind of off to a bad start and then started getting hot and hit a winning streak. And, you know, life turned out different and better for me. And helping Clinton win the presidency must have then been an extraordinary moment in your family when the Carville name suddenly was globally known. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, you know, it was it's quite extraordinary. It, it, it is not very many people would have a chance to, you know, as we say in our profession, you know, the night when a presidential election, is, you breathe the rarest air on earth. I mean, I got a chance to do that in my life, and I'm forever grateful for it. Being one of eight kids, what lessons did you learn from that, and how did that help you in life? You know, um, the one that you just kind of learn, but things with big families, the people marvel by them. The truth of the matter is parents stop raising children after about the third. When the fourth child, particularly if it's a female, raises the first child, you know? And I, I think I think uh, we also, you know, were cramped and you know, I don't know. It was a good. I had a happy childhood. I mean, I I, I just I, I can't deny it. I, I don't have a, a tale of woe. I, I didn't have to come all overcome any emotional scars from my parents or anything like that. Uh, you know, I, I was a well-adjusted uh, child, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. You were of university age and a young student when the country was in turmoil in the 60s. All of that social upheaval and the Vietnam War and the peace movement and the student movement. Did that touch Louisiana and how did that affect you? Well, it, 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 of course it touched Louisiana. It affected me profoundly because I was in the United States Marine Corps. It was a kind of oddity because we had two year enlistments in. And uh, from June of 1960, from June the 6th, in fact, the date of the devil. I'll never forget, uh, June 6th or 5th of 1968. So I was profoundly touched by the Vietnam War. I, I continue to be haunted by it. Uh, my brother was a Vietnam veteran who, who uh, led to an early death because of uh, what, hap- what, what happened to, to young people over there who were in that war and got involved with substances that, you know, were not good for him. And, uh, you know, he got... The rest is what happens to people. I lost any number of it's just a disaster, and I went back to Vietnam. I would have never went first time I went in uh, last year, and it's just a terrific place. I mean, people are just as nice and industrious and hardworking and productive as you can imagine. And I just had this overwhelming thing: what in the hell were we doing over there? They palming these people. I mean, it was, it was so manifestly stupid. I, I, the more I think about it, the, the, the more I, I shudder. Now, you have tremendous discipline in your personal and professional life, your punctuality, you have a daily routine, you go to bed early, you run every day. Did some of that come from your time in the Marines? And how did that contribute to your enormous success? I, I, I don't, I, uh, you know, I don't, because I got out of the Marine Corps and I, I, I just was kind of lethargic and was kind of overweight and everything. And then one day, I, I, I kind of wouldn't motivate me. I started to work out, and some older guy kind of pushed me along. And basically, since August the 1st, 1981, I, I've worked out probably 350 days a year. And uh, I've, I've lost uh, 45 pounds and kept them off. I mean, I, I, you know, if you get a routine, and then I just became to appreciate, and I, I do, I do like a routine, I 
I do like to get up early. As, I, as I'm retired, sometimes I find myself going to bed a little later and getting up a little later than I used to. But, you know, I was notorious for being the first person in the headquarters and I didn't like meetings. I never had an office. I tried to discourage people. You know, I, I tried to encourage action and discourage over deliberation. Now, the Clinton campaign was such a turning point for you. You know, fame and money, speaking engagements, books, documentaries. And as you said, you were like in the most rarefied air of all. But then you decided not to work in any more domestic campaigns, although you've advised many candidates. Why did you make that decision to walk away from domestic campaigns? Well, at the time, first of all, I, I would have been an issue myself. I mean, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, in the United States, once you become a famous person, all you can do is be famous. It, it does not allow you to, so much to be productive. And I, I loved politics. And, I, you know, although I was 50, I, I still had a, a sense of adventure. And I, I worked in 22 different countries. And... Kind of winded that part of my life down, but it was a it was quite an experience. Ed, what was it like? You started working on these foreign campaigns. What was that like to to work on foreign campaigns? It must be a difficult proposition. You know, it, it's not as hard as you think because basically I was a communications advisor, and most people receive information in, in pretty much the same way. And it's not, you know, it's not up to me to earn the the nuances of a political system, but try to help, you know, candidates and political parties develop a develop a, a way to communicate, to, to use emotion, you know. It, it, so it, 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 I, I never had a, a whole lot of trouble with it. You know, some people worship on Friday and some on Saturday and some on Sunday. Or, you know, people have different cultures and, and that kind of stuff. But most people around the world prefer, you know, not to be stolen from a lot to now, how, what was your most favorite uh, foreign campaign? Uh, it's a good question. I've thought about probably Colombia. And, and the reason is, is my client uh, uh, won the Nobel Prize, uh, stopped the longest ongoing conflict that, that we've had since I'm probably in, in the world, the, the fight between the FARC and the government of Colombia, I don't know how many years that went on. Uh, he, uh, he went on to win a Nobel Prize. We had a very tough re-election uh, that we won. And uh, of course, as everything happens in this world, it looks like the, even that deal is going south. So it's just, you know, something to be proud of and it's something to be concerned about. But it's a lot of other, uh, I work in Afghanistan, I like to say sales, if you ever get a chance to, you know, to get paid or, you know, and please, First-class ticket to the Seychelles is pretty good duty. It's, a, it's kind of a long haul. I've worked in Indonesia, you know, Israel, Brazil, Argentina a lot, you know, Bahamas. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a, met some interesting people and done some interesting things. Now, you've seen democracy in all shapes and sizes and colors. Has that given you a different perspective on political campaigns and politics here in the U.S., particularly where we are here today? Well, yeah, you, the thing that you learn in other places that I, I thought we could and I've now learned we can't, you know, if you work in Argentina, you, you can't take democracy for granted. They don't have a great democratic small b tradition, if you will. Uh, and, and that's true in a lot of places. And I was always secure 
that our democracy was, I was almost to the point of, I hate to say this, but almost arrogant that I would say it, but you know, our democracy, and now I see what's happening to it. Uh, it's, it look what's happening in, in, in the United Kingdom. I mean, it, who would have thought you would have this and, and you would have it in relatively prosperous times? Uh, I, I think the entire thing is, is, is very troubling. Uh, I have no idea what the reaction this country is going to be when the, the economy inevitably always does go south. I mean, if we're acting like this, when our economy is running at near capacity, I, I, I'm sickened to think about what it's going to be in the future. Now, looking back on your life for a minute, before we look at sort of the election landscape here, what would you say was the moment of greatest adversity in your life? Some lesson you learned or something that happened in your life or your family's life? You know, I, I guess we, we, were, we all kind of look back and we want that, that one story that explains everything. I mean, that, that one great rabbinical teaching moment, if you will. Uh, I, I don't know if I... I can point to one thing that happened like, like that. Uh, what I do know is I was practicing law one day and I, I sat at my desk and I literally remember saying this, you, you know, I wouldn't, if I had to hire a lawyer, I wouldn't hire me. And so I'm going to quit because I just wasn't very good at it and I was older and I wasn't very, frankly, I could ride a horse really good. I was a really good horseman and I was like, I, way better than average marksman. But I, I was, you know, a high school athlete. I was a middling law student. Uh, and then I started in politics. And I remember in 1988 in New Jersey, I sat at my desk one morning and said, you know, if I had to hire a campaign manager, I would hire me, which was just one of the greatest moments in my life. It was just a private moment I had with myself, you know, Fifteen in the morning, but a cup of coffee. But it was a, it, it was a exhilarating feeling to at least think of yourself as the best there. And once you find that kind of superpower, literally, there's nothing to stop you, and that's hard to find sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes you need maybe my I was cocky and had confidence ahead of my abilities, but you know, it, it, confidence never hurt anybody. I mean, cockiness is one thing, but, you know, hubris is one thing, but confidence is, is, is quite another. And you say that your a lot of your confidence came from your mother's love for you and confidence in you. Yes, it did. And she, it, it, my mother knew how to sell, right? I, 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 I can tell you this story because it, it, it shows how she could sell. So she sold these encyclopedias, and I was, I don't know, 12, 13, and we would ride around South Louisiana, and, and she'd always say, we're going to look for a, a bass boat, a fishing boat, and a bicycle. Uh, and she knew how to economically target people because she said that meant that that household had some disposable income and had children. Because that was the only people that would buy educational materials. And we would knock on the door, and this was 19, late 1950s, South Louisiana. And... You know, people kind of gracious, and the lady at the house. And by, and by the way, we, 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 this was the kind of ridiculous as sound. It was kind of revolutionary because we would go door to door in African American houses too, which was unheard of at the time. But I digress for the moment. And it, it, it would ever happen that the lady would come and we'd sit around and she'd 
he'd look at me and he said, uh, son, what's the capital of Vermont? Uh, Montpelier. What's the capital of, you know, Washington State, uh, Olympia? They go, oh, my God, he's a genius. He's like, yeah, he's got these world book encyclopedias. And so the lady would come in and bring the man of the house in. And he'd say, well, you know, this, this looks great. And, you know, but it's, it's October and we got the holidays coming up. And, you know, I'm a little strapped. Maybe after the first of the year, you can go back and we'll talk about it. And she looked up and she said, you know, sir, I find it interesting that you can afford a bath boat for yourself, but you can't buy educational materials for your children. And the guy was crushed. He'd find anything. He'd just, he'd just watch, watch it just like obliterate him in front of his wife. He almost started crying. <laughs> that nothing like the good guilt trip, right? Once in a while. Right. And I mean, she, they didn't know where it was coming. And she'd deliver it with, with you know, because she, she was a woman that had presence. All right. And the guy just, he just melted. <laughs> it was done. And what did that teach you? You know, it, it teaches me that, first of all, you got to know what you, you got to figure out who you're going for. I.e., let's separate them out. Let's get the, the, the target voters. Let's get the people we can get. Let's get the people with the bass boat and the bicycle. And then, you know, you got to get in and sell. Just exactly what politics is. So, you know, who are the people that live in these states that can make a difference? What are the people, what demographic group, what, what, what anything can you see to make a difference? You, you, you learn that riding around in a car trying to sell encyclopedias. A lot of people in, in, in think that it, there's something unseemly about selling. And these gentlemen, unless they're really, really talented, they're generally a terribly unsuccessful and unhappy in their life. Now, I know that they're, they're, you know, coders and artists and, you know, reclusive novelists. And, you know, we used to laugh and the expression is, is that, you know, I'm, if you're going to try to life, you better, you know, you better learn how to bend over and kiss ass. And I always tell us, we tell a story about Faulkner who said that he quit working the post office because he wasn't at the back and call of every SOB that had three cents to spend on a stamp. And if you're Faulkner, that's fine. You can do that. If you're Faulkner, you can tell the world to shop off. However, if you're remotely like me and not Faulkner and decidedly not Faulkner, then you have to engage the world. And that's a good thing to know about yourself. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not William Faulkner. I can't. I can't go and sit in North Mississippi and not talk to anybody and bang out Absalon Absalon. I just it's not in my. I don't have the skill to do that, and I accept it. So I got. I got to be at the beck and call of every son of a bitch just got three cents spent for staff. Going back to the theme of big decisions, you got married and became a father well into adulthood. What was that experience like? And subsequently, you also made the big decision with your wife, Mary, to move to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. All right. Well, I mean, uh, uh, you know, being older parents, you, 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 at least I was, I, I was very aware of, you know, the biological risk that involved in this. And mercifully and thankfully it it, 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 it turned out fine. My my children have uh, done quite done well, very well. Uh, in terms of moving back to Louisiana, I, I the best way I can put it, I was I was like an old Jew and I just been in Brooklyn too long. I just ready to go back to Jerusalem or whatever. I don't know how to explain it, but 
you know, after the storm, you know, I, I, I just couldn't think anything else. I just kind of missing everything. I, I, I just, and my wife, you know, agreed. And so we just went back. I, I just, I wanted to, I, I did not want to grow old among strangers. That was very important to me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us, you know, who are transplants never have that sense of roots that you, you've experienced, you know, being from Louisiana. Right. Right. And, and I mean, one of the great glories of my life is I, I, I did have a place to go back to, uh, you know, where I would be appreciated and accepted and where I, und- I completely understood the culture. I would, it, it's kind of, if you're not from there, it, it's, it's kind of hard, but our culture is different and it's kind of not for everybody. But once it's like ingrained in you, it, 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 it never leaves you. I mean, you can leave South Louisiana. South Louisiana is never going to leave you, right? It, it, you can't wash it off. You can't forget about it. You can't do anything. It just is uh, just it, it is who we are. And, and given, in, you know, of course, of my life's mission is the, the horrific uh, environmental problems that we have, which we in South Louisiana are ground zero. Right? Everything that you see, we are aware of what's happening. And I, I'm, the extent that I can, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to if you will, rally the troops to, to be even as aggressive as they possibly can be. But I'm, uh, this thing in the Bahamas was just, it was sickening. It, it, people don't, don't even realize how bad it was. And not that it's a Category 5 storm. This is the fifth Category 5 storm we've had in four years. These storms are starting to be stationary. And so if you think about it, they've they stayed there like 40 hours. That's the same thing that happened in Houston. And the same thing happened in North Carolina. It, it once going we had a Category Four, a high four in late October, in the Florida Panhandle. It, 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 you know, and, and and what's happening is there was a guy at LSU, actually a scientist that that studied rainfall tables in Louisiana and found out it doesn't rain. The duration of rain is constant over the years. But the intensity has gone up many fold. We're not getting more hurricanes than we used to. We're just getting worse. And I mean, much worse than we used to. And this is the first time in, since the recorded hurricanes that we've had, you know, four years of Category 5s in a row. And of course, the, and I don't want to get started on this, but I, I can't help but say it. That, 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 Idiot in the, the IC, the idiot in charge, tweets out that no one had ever heard of a Category 5. He said four since he's been president. I, I mean, I, I mean, nature, the, the, the river was against the levee in Baton Rouge for 211 days. It was 15 inches from the top of the levee, and we had a gubernatorial candidate in Louisiana run an ad saying that he wanted to build the walls on the Rio Grande. I mean, the, the, the level of stupidity that we're dealing with here at an existential moment, and, and for sure in my, my hometown, in my area, but I think it's for the rest of the world, too, is, is, is really remarkable. It's remarkable, and not in a good way. So looking ahead at this, uh, the Democratic campaign here for 2020, when, when you ran the Clinton campaign, you had a list posted in the campaign war room to help yourself and your team focus. And the three important campaign themes were 
change versus the same, the economy is stupid, and don't forget healthcare. If you were to do something similar in the 2020 race, what would you advise the current slate of candidates they should focus on to, to win the race? I, I would say be, look, every, they're not great policy difference among Democratic candidates. Everybody wants to expand healthcare. Everybody wants to do something about climate. Everybody wants to stop the inhumane treatment of, of, of families on our border, right? Everybody is concerned with income inequality. Everybody thinks that, that taxation needs to be more progressive and more tax rich. We, we all agree with that. What the country is looking for is somebody that can just take the temperature down. But, but understand that the, the policy difference that we're dealing with here are not great. And if we don't, the Democrats don't win the Senate, of which I'm sorry, we've got to pick up four, probably five seats. Uh, we've, got to, we've got to be nice and we've got to fight for votes everywhere. You know, just 18 percent of the United States elects 52 senators. You're not going to change the country. You can have all of the Elizabeth Warren can be president. Nancy Pelosi can be speaker. If Mitch McConnell is the majority leader and John Roberts and, and Brett Kavanaugh are running the Supreme Court, you know what's going to happen? Nothing. And people are going to go in with high hopes, and it's just going to be the same cycle. And it's like I can see this coming. And I'm like trying to scream at people. We've got we to think of a different way to do this. And, you know, I'll, I'll watch the debate, I watch the climate debate. Okay, you can't have a climate debate unless you talk about exhaustive engineering. And, and I mean, like, you're not going to get this thing right enough without higher levees. You're not going to get it right without better drainage. You're going to do You need more spillways. You need more green spaces. You need more sinks. You need more outlets. You're going to need, uh, and you're going to need to engineer things like high speed rail. You know, efficient engines, alternative energy, all solar, all that is part of it. Next thing is, I'm sorry, you have to put nuclear on the table. If, if people are not going to, you know, without great deal of angst, uh, have a decline in their standard of living, they're going to have air conditioning. They're going to they're going to have lights at night. All right, so we're going to have to really, really work on that. And not just us, but around the world. I, I, you can't tell me that the world, that you know, people in the United States, China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, can't come up with a safe, sound design for nuclear energy. And then we're going to have to have diplomacy because you know we're have to not just re-engage Paris, but we're going to have to really re-engage Paris. And then we're going to need to tax carbon. I mean, we know, but it, it's not a doesn't take an economic genius enough to be John Maynard Keynes to know that if you deem something that is not good, then you tax it and you have less of it and you give tax breaks to things that are good. So higher taxes on carbon, higher subsidies for renewables. Uh, if it, that, that you got to do all of it. you got to have engineering. If, 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 if there's no one size fits all. And now we're saying, I mean, time is not on our side. Time is, is time is is really working against us, and it, it's really working against climate sensitive places. You know, like the people who live in river deltas, like us. But you know, 
think of the, I think 20% of the world's population lives in Riverdale. How many people live in Mumbai? How many people live in Lago? How many people live in Gansongdu or Bangkok? Or actually, you know? Are you saying that those are the kinds of topics that candidates need to talk about and put on the front burner? Or? They don't need to talk about Riverdale, you know, world citizen Riverdale, but they need to say, we've got to have a comprehensive and realistic plan. This is the greatest problem we have. It should be treated with seriousness. And these are four serious proposals that I'm going to work on. And it's got to be treated in a different way. You just you, you just can't sit there and say, well, I'm not taking donations from fossil fuels companies. Okay? No. But let's, you got to talk about everything. And, and we got to demand that, you know, we, we want to have a real conversation about this, not some gragger suit and asking Joe Biden about somebody hosted a fundraiser for him. In Houston. And then that becomes the signature moment of the Democratic Party, where we don't have, a, we have insufficient conversation about the things that really matter and could really change things. Now, you are a very big reader and you're a student of history, but that kind of reading is a lost art for a lot of people these days. And a lot of this rhetoric comes from social media at this kind of loss of deep thought, like the kind you're saying we should be engaged in, the kind of deep reading and thinking, the loss of that seems to be a part of, and, and of course, the whole Twitter Twitterverse that we're all engaged in now, that seems to be a big part of what you're you're trying to talk about, the loss of civility and civilized discourse. But, but I guess my, my, my point is, is everybody, we're in the, the, the shout-down age. All right. And, and the way that we deal with things that we don't agree with is we shoot them down. We don't use them to show that they're wrong. And I, I, you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't buy that. And I also don't buy that, that there is some place that, that's, that says that you can, you have to do this and you have to do that. I, I just think it's like, it's like silly. Can you imagine somebody sitting there saying, well, you had a guy in Houston who has stock in a, in a fossil fuel company, and then they have a 10-minute discussion is to say whether or not he actually has any line authority in the company. <clears throat> I mean, it's just, and then we, we do things that are not going to happen. We say we're going to ban fracking immediately. You're not going to do that, All right? You know, you can get, you can do a lot of different things. And, and I, I think that the urban extreme left wing, and they're not Democrats, okay, are, are driving so much of the debate in the Democratic Party. And I, I, I think Democrats have to take the debate back. How do they do that? And who do you think has a, a chance to go up against Donald Trump and win? I, yeah, I wish I knew. I wish I, I would love nothing better to tell you and the people who listen to this program that James Carville has the magic candidate. This is who I endorse. I, I, I'm watching the process and I'm hoping for the best. Now, you know, you've had a life so rich in experience and it's kind of come to me from everything you have written and, and your wife, Mary Madeline, has written that faith is really important to, to you and to both of you. And given this political division in our society today, how does your faith shape how you think about the future of the country and how this is all going to turn out in the years ahead? Well, let me talk about that a little bit. So I have been very 
interested in how we why, why aren't we moving people? And I, I am particularly interested in the coastal climate debate. And so I, I had to start that I wanted, what, what is a time in history where people acted against what they perceived to be their short or immediate term interest? And I, a, a friend of mine, I'll be a name dropper here, a, a friend of mine named Sean Valance, is chairman of the history department at Princeton. And I said, Sean, what, when in history something like this happen? And he said, you know, probably the best example was the British anti-slave trade movement. And he said, there's this great book called Bury the Chains by an academic by the name of Adam Hoshio. And the book is, is utterly compelling. And I, I, I said, what did they – and it, by the way, if you were living in Britain, in London, or, or – or Liverpool or any place like that, you were the slave trade was pretty cool for you. You, you slavery was as old as the world, as Hashio put out. It was nothing unique. You you had cheap sugar and flour and coffee and you know other things. Uh, the, the 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 slave docks were probably prosperous. You know, for all you know, you had somebody working there. And what and what they had is they used emotion. They had the most famous song in the English language as their anthem, a minor tune called Amazing Grace, that was written by a former slave ship captain. They had Wedgwood China. They had designs, and they did research. And right now, all we're doing in the climate movement is giving people title tables and statistics and, and, you know, 2.3 degrees centigrade. We need a goddamn song. We need a piece of art. There's no way that I, if, if, as, as a person who is unbelievably concerned about what's happening to the future of the world, that I can communicate with you in shorthand. My daughter pointed out Harvey Milton designed the rainbow flag. And, and art, because every university, every college has an alma mater. Every country has an anthem. Climate has nothing. It has no soul. And until you put emotion in it, until we can get together and sing a song, until we can have a bumper sticker, until we can have a lapel pin, can we show politicians and business leaders and opinion makers, and everybody says, what the hell is this? I see this damn thing everywhere. And says, well, that's the, that's the people who think the earth is going to catch fire. Yeah, that's us. We, we, we want you to see us. But we, we don't allow ourselves to be seen. We have to have a common way for people to see us. And you only do that by art and emotion. That's my, that, that's my belief about this whole thing. It is, it, it, I, I am a proud liberal. I'm not a leftist. I'll be very, very clear about that. But I, I, we use reason. You know, reason is great. I, I think it's wonderful. But, you know, not by bread alone does man live. You got to give people emotion. You got to give them connectivity. You got to give them shared values. You know, they got to feel good. Well, you know, I was in the Marine Corps, you know, Marine Corps him. Why? Because they want to make you feel good before you get your ass shot off. That's why they have it. Yeah. President Trump, you know, has fundamentally also changed the nature of political campaigns and the presidency and how he communicates and his use of Twitter to conduct policy, to respond to his critics. 
What do you think that kind of emotion and his lasting legacy will be in the U.S. and, and the global political discourse? I, I think he's one of the most wretched human beings that I can imagine. I, I, I'm so... But the, 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 my one thing is, let's be as unlike him as we possibly can be. Right? As we possibly can be. I mean, let's show people that something. I don't know. I get I, people come up to me all the time. Airports, you know. Oh, Mr. Carvel, I'm so scared. You know what I tell them? You're not scared enough. And I, I was in a having breakfast in uptown New Orleans, and I like a little kind of yuppie cafe. And kind of lady in her 50s comes up, and she's very polite as people are down there. And Mr. Carvel, mother loves you. She's very shy. Oh, I'll be glad to you, Mama. Hello. Very, very nice lady. And she said, you know, when I look at Trump, I, th I think about committing suicide. I said, well, that's not an irrational thought, but let's hit the pause button on that. <laughs> and we got some other options here. Like, this is hard. And, and he's ruining the United States. You know, I, I hope we're a big enough country. I, I, people assure me that the country survived civil wars and depressions and world wars and, you know, and all of that. And I understand that. But, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party owes it to this country to, you know, get back in power and give people an alternative. I, I really mean that. What do you say to your students at LSU to help them understand this moment in time? Well, yeah, I don't know that I, that I can, and I don't. You know, I, I got to be careful about just being some old man screaming at a bunch of twenty-year-olds. And I'm trying to motivate them on the, the on the, this particularly difficult issue we have in Louisiana with coastal land loss, and I'm I'm trying to like get them to think more creatively and regurgitate less. Uh, you know, but you have to have you got to you got to know the physics. You got to have the basics, and if you don't have that, uh, you know, you need that to start. I, I'm really pushing. I, I think it's insane the way that we we silo STEM kids and we silo communications people and we silo this. I think we got to have a lot of interdisciplinary programs uh, in our educational system where people have scientific literacy and, uh, you know, also able to construct sentences and thoughts. And so I'm kind of trying to work on maybe changing our curriculum a little bit if I can, trying to, to, to you know, come up with different ideas. A piece of art that actually reflects the way I feel is like the most expensive painting ever so. It got like $130 million, a screen, a Norwegian painter. That's how I feel. It's just about, yeah, what is going on here? These climate scientists have to have special mental health. They're, they're, they're subjects of depression and suicide because they go out and they take these readings and they know what they mean and they know no one's going to do anything about it. And they, they need emotional support out there. It sounds like you spend a, a, a lot of time thinking about the weather uh, just uh, and the implications that it is having. Would you say that that's really uppermost on your mind? Well, you know what? If I lived, if I lived at, if I lived in 1942, I'd spend a lot of time thinking about Germany and Japan, wouldn't I? It would be part of the conversation. In my view, that's where we are now, uh, and we are ground zero. We, we are, you know, we're Flanders in World War One. 
You know, we're 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 Stalingrad in World War Two. We're midway. I mean, we're right at the front. This this is where to we're the first place to go. So where do we go from here? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a line in the movie where he said, "I ask you to do one simple little thing. I ask you to kill Superman, and you couldn't even do that." I mean, honestly, we just got to we, we have to have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate. It, 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 literally, I, I know that politics is not to be all end all and everything, and I know we have two parties. I know this. I mean, this has got to be this is task number one for the country. What we have is, is not working, is profoundly not working, and is not going to work and, unless we interject a significantly different direction in this country. We're in deep trouble. James, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Do you have any closing thoughts? No, I mean, I, I really, you know, I love you so much and uh, that you, you know, so thoughtful and that you do this and that you bring in, you know, a thoughtful, you know, conversation to, you know, to your listeners. And I think this is a good thing. It, you know, I tell you what I, what I tell my children, if, if there's one expression I tell my students this, that I cannot stand. I think the worst expression we have is that calls somebody, quote, a real American. That, that just annoys me to no end. I did that. Everybody is. And I don't, as you can imagine, I am not a huge fan of the squad. But once you tell somebody to go back where they came from, I'm sorry. No one needs to go back to anywhere. America, you know, it's not blood and soil. We're not a place. America's an idea. And I want America to stay an idea. Thank you so much, James. All right, Jetra. Good luck to you. Thank you. James Carville is an internationally recognized political strategist, media commentator, best-selling author, public speaker, and a prominent advisor and figure in the Democratic Party. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.